morning and welcome to Rising. Today is apparently National Brownie Day and also National Crossword Solvers Day. So I guess solve one of your favorite crossword puzzles somewhere. But not the New York Times. If you want to uh, respect their strike, that their uh, the New York Times uh, good walkout, which is happening today. Uh, mm. I, I woke up this morning as I often do to a t- text from a family member with a daily Wordle, and I had to remind them that they should not be doing oh, their you Wordle have to break today. Your wordle streak. You I've not done Wordle. So- in a couple solidarity of weeks, sometimes means you break your Wordle streak. Okay, I don't know <laughs> about that. Well, what else are we talking about today? <laughs> well, Kevin Cerilli will be joining us to discuss the investigation into the FTX collapse and news that the House Financial Services chair has no plans to subpoena Sam Bankman-Fried to testify on Capitol Hill. We'll also discuss the ousting of a Virginia superintendent over his handling of two sexual assaults in the school district. But first, WNBA star Brittany Griner has been released today in a one-for-one prisoner swap for international arms dealer Victor Boo according to CBS News. Griner was held for months in Ru- uh, Russian prisons on uh, some minor drug charges. Here's Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle Griner, on Brittany's release. Today, I'm just standing here um, overwhelmed with emotions, but the most important emotion that I have right now is just sincere gratitude um, for President Biden and his entire administration. The move still leaves retired U.S. Marine Paul Whelan imprisoned in Russia. He's been in Russian custody for nearly four years after he was convicted on espionage charges that the U.S. has called false. President Biden addressed this as well today. Let's take a look. We never forgot about Brittany. We've not forgotten about Paul Whelan, who's been unjustly detained in Russia for years. This was not a choice of which American to bring home. We brought home Trevor Reed when we had a chance early this year. Sadly, for totally illegitimate reasons, Russia is treating Paul's case differently than Brittany's. And while we have not yet succeeded in securing Paul's release, we are not giving up. So to, you know, recap, uh, she was arrested because she had 0.7 grams of cannabis oil in her luggage. She said she packed in a hurry, didn't realize it was in there, um, was has been there for months, was sentenced to years and years in pretty terrible conditions. And a lot of folks were wondering whether or not the war in Ukraine basically put her at a real disadvantage. And there hadn't been a lot of public discussion, frankly, about getting her out. And there was a lot of discourse about whether or not she was being unfairly treated because she was a WNBA star versus an NBA star, whether um, there was an intentional interest in keeping the publicity down so that the negotiations could happen more easily. I'm not sure what was going on behind the scenes, but it was, I think, a pleasant surprise for a lot of people to discover that she had been released. Yeah, so there's a lot of elements to this story. I know some people will be upset um, that we were letting a arms dealer and supplier of terrorists go in order to facilitate this. My view is, you know, it's the U.S. government's job to, if it has any job at all, to rescue Americans who, mm-hmm. have, who have unfairly and unjustly found themselves in these situations. So, yes, I understand why this trade would be made. I think it is an unmitigated win to be able to bring her home. Good for the Biden administration for securing that. Um, And I'm I'm glad that Biden addressed the Paul Whelan question there, though, because that is a big question. This guy has been held longer. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure some people will ask, well, did she get bumped to the front of the line in in terms of importance of bringing her home because she was a celebrity or because is there more outrage? Because I mean, I'm sure some conservatives will say it's because she's an LGBT American or something like that. Um, Now, he Biden is claiming that that 
Whalen was just not on the table because so he was convicted under uh, they believe that he was a spy. He, they've said he was carrying a lot of cash. I think he was there um, for a wedding was, was the reason he was there. He was carrying a lot of cash. They've said he's a spy. The U.S. has denied that he's a spy. I think it's difficult to say who's right or who's wrong. He could be a spy. We, we, we would not admit if he was, probably. Mm -hmm. um, or they could absolutely have just seized the opportunity to apprehend a totally innocent American. Um, that release should also be secured. And I, the, the Biden administration should have, I mean, this was a big person to let go. I guess that's always the frustration. Yeah. Like, when we, when we got back, uh, what, Bo Bergdahl, right? We let, mm. didn't we, I think we let a number of terrorists mm. go in that case. So we, we, we get one person and we give them the scum of the earth walks free. So that's frustrating. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I'm also curious. I mean, I will be talking later in my radar about um, Joe Biden's choice to move, uh, or the Democratic Party's choice to move South Carolina up in the uh, voting schedule, and the primary voting schedule, and how that contrasts with some the deliverables that he hasn't provided to black Americans in order to get their vote. And I do wonder, the Brittany Griner case has been brought up in the conversation about what has he done for black America. A, a cynical view might be, okay, this is a priority that's a lot easier to get for Joe Biden to demonstrate some interest in delivering for black Americans in something substantive and economic, like canceling student debt or two thousand. Well, and that checks, plays into the, what I just said, like, that's why if they had the choice of one or mm, the other, mm. right, he gets to put black Americans at mm. ease. I free Brittany Griner. Don't ask questions about yeah, whether or not I'm going to would be real, <laughs> real bad. And then, yeah. of course, we just have to bring this up, the hypocrisy of condemning Russia mm -hmm. for imprisoning Brittany Griner for possessing a cannabis product when we have locked up so many people yeah. for nonviolent, consensual drug use uh, or, or drug mm -hmm. selling or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so many Americans, probably the majority of Americans in a lot of cases, think this should be totally legal. I do as well. And many of our elected officials do. And, and Biden's progress on this front has been slow. It's, recently, there was the, the changing the schedule was announced mm -hmm. uh, for, I think, for federal, but that's not going to affect states. It's, it's the administration, all, all local, state, local, right. national government in the U.S. has done has moved on all of this so slowly, right. and it's morally appalling. It is unjustifiable. Nobody supports it anymore. So we can't stand on our high horse and right. condemn Russia, which deserves condemnation for all this and more. But we're not really leading I mean, here. It's difficult. Look, uh, apparently 45% of all inmates are in there for drug offenses. For women, it's 59% are serving sentences for drug-related offenses. Yeah. I mean, that's the, predominantly the reason that yeah. women in, in particular are in jail. You have no movement on the George, George, uh, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. You know, to look back at 2020 and see how that seemed to be, you know, the protests seemed to be the, the movement of the era and to see that there was absolutely no political movement on uh, after Joe Biden got elected. He promised to do it by the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. That was a promise that he came up with. Nobody asked him for that. He set that own internal deadline and then blew past it. And the thing I'll never forget is I remember the night before looking online thinking, is anyone going to care about this? And I saw, you know, uh, I think Al Sharpton put out a tweet, like a preemptive tweet. Hey, I'd rather have a good deal than a deal that comes on time. And now here we are almost, you know, two full years after that with still nothing on the table. After there was an increasing, I think, bipartisan consensus around a lot of these criminal justice issues, you know, we talked about that horrific um, uh, 
police execution case, the Daniel Shaver, uh, the Daniel case, Shaver yeah. case, uh, a couple of days ago. Um, there's a lot of interest across the aisle about qualified immunity um, being a problem, especially after we've seen the cops fail in Uvalde and all of these other instances across the country, unable to track down the people who perpetrated any number of crimes. We've been talking about this college murder case as well. You know, there's a lot of the, the mm -hmm. police are not sitting high on the hog the way that they have in, mm -hmm. in recent years. And yet there's absolutely no movement from it because there's no there's no public pressure. Mm -hmm. And I do think that moments like this, I, I want to celebrate this as a victory. Obviously, it's such a huge sure. victory for Brittany Griner's family. I can't imagine what her wife was, has been going through. But it, 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 it would be, I think, negligent not to also scrutinize whether or not there's certain political advantages to this for a president who has woefully underserved um, the, the criminal justice advocacy community more broadly and black Americans more narrowly. I think that a lot of police officers actually who also share the view that yeah. busting people for low-level drug offenses is a waste of their time. I, I was just talking to one, actually, a, a family friend in, in Cleveland um, who was driving me to the airport was a former police officer. And we were having this exact conversation about drug use uh, and about, uh, not Brittany Griner, but about drug use and what cops are forced to do and the roles they're forced to take on and how their time could be better spent. And I think you're absolutely right. The, the battle lines that used to be around this issue just aren't where they used to be. And there's a lot of room for progress if the Biden administration wants to take a bite at it. Well, this just in, Paul Whelan's family has called Griner's release the right move. So they're celebrating that, uh, right, which I understand absolutely, um, although I would really hope to see some progress mm. on that case as well. So hopefully the Biden administration is still working on that behind the scenes. Up next, we'll have Brianna's radar. Stay tuned for that. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, it looks like Joe Biden is trying to rig the 2024 election. And more than that, his supporters are accusing anyone who objects to that of racism. Let me explain. Earlier this week, the DNC recommended a new primary schedule. Instead of Iowa starting off voting in February before New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina, a panel of Democratic Party insiders have moved South Carolina up first to February 3rd, followed by Nevada and New Hampshire. Georgians would vote third uh, and Michigan and Kenders fourth. Now, there are perfectly good reasons to want to change the lineup. Iowa is not a demographically representative state, and its caucus voting system can cause some complications likes of which we saw very clearly in 2020. Politicians end up spending a lot of time in a relatively small state that has little predictive value for how the country as a whole actually feels. Only three of seven presidents since 1978 won their Iowa caucuses, Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama, and George W. Bush. Ronald Reagan, George Bush Sr., and Trump all lost Iowa and went on, obviously, to win their respective elections. But that's quite transparently not why Biden boosters want to switch up the lineup. The real reason is that Joe Biden completely bombed in the first three states to vote in 2020, coming in fourth and fifth in Iowa and New Hampshire, respectively, before placing second Nevada 26 points behind one Bernie Sanders. This was a scary time for Biden since early wins can set up a positive media narrative for a flagging candidate, signaling that they should be taken seriously. This can result in noodles of free media and shifted expectations. But Obama benefited hugely from this effect in, 20, uh, in 2008 before winning Iowa. Many voters, including black voters, considered his presidency too much of a long shot to support him in the primary, even if he was generally well-liked. 
His performance with white Midwestern voters in particular helped folks in other parts of the country have confidence that a black man really could win the presidency. When Bernie's successful retail politics yielded results in Iowa, followed by huge wins with Latino voters in Nevada, the media had to work overtime to assure the public that the state that really mattered was South Carolina. Pundits, including Afro-Latina Soledad O'Brien, insisted that non-diverse states should be discounted, erasing the diversity of states like Nevada that actually very closely reflects the overall demographics of the country. And where Bernie won, 70 percent of the Latino vote. What they knew is that Biden had put all his eggs in the South Carolina basket and that to stop Bernie from getting any momentum from his wins, they had to shift the public expectations to caring about any other state than the ones where the people didn't choose Biden. Now, it wouldn't be the Democratic Party if they didn't use identity politics to put a principled gloss on this clear power grab. Rather than telling the truth that South Carolina Democratic voters are highly committed to longtime Congressman Jim Clyburn, who can reliably deliver the state to whomever he endorses, they pretend this is about privileging black voters. When the Bernie 2020 campaign chair, Faz Shakir, penned a New York Times op-ed criticizing Biden's proposal this week, he was slammed by DNC chair Jamie Harrison as disrespecting and dismissing black voters. Faz pointed out that he'd support Georgia, which has a higher percentage of black Americans in South Carolina, going first. But we are not in the realm of facts and reason here, folks. The party has spoken, and they are going to run this identity angle into the ground. In his statement, Biden said, quote, we must ensure that voters of color have a voice in choosing our nominee much earlier in the process and throughout the entire early window. Black voters in particular have been the backbone of the Democratic Party, but have been, pu been pushed to the back of the early primary process. We rely on these voters in elections, but have not recognized their importance in the nominating calendar. I got to say, it sure is interesting to hear Biden care so much about black voters because he was singing a very different tune, an elite closed-door call with black civil rights leaders in the fall of 2020, where after dressing down the group for, you know, asking Biden to deliver for their constituencies, he implied that black leaders should rein in their expectations because there's a new minority in town. By 2040, this country is going to be minority white European. You hear me? Minority white European. And you guys are going to have to start working more with Hispanics, who make up a larger portion of the population you all do, in terms of raw numbers. Now, given the demographic reality Biden emphasized there, you'd think there'd be more of a push to lead with, say, Nevada where there is a large Latino population. But after what happened to Biden there in 2020, we all know they never let that happen. Do you remember this post-Nevada meltdown? Prominent Democratic strategists and pundits started spitting out on live TV. James Carville, for example, has been showing up nonstop on MSNBC, warning that nominating Bernie would destroy the party and even suggesting that Russian President Vladimir Putin was rooting for him. It's going to be the end of days. So I am, I am scared to death. I really am. There's a certain part of the Democratic Party that wants us to be a cult. I'm not interested in being in a cult. I'm, I'm 75 years old. I'm just not a, I'm not a very culty person. I'm 75 years old. Why am I here doing this 
because I am scared to death. That's why the happiest person right now, it's about 1.15 Moscow time. This thing is going very well for Vladimir Putin. I promise you. He, he, he's probably staying up watching us right now. How you doing, Vlad? Chris Matthews actually compared Bernie's victory in Nevada to the Nazi invasion of France during World War II. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940, and the general, Renault, calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Churchill said, how can it be? You've got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. So I had that suppressed feeling. I can't be as wild as Carville, but he is damn smart. And I think he's damn right on this one. <laughs> that's what it looks like when the Democratic Party loses control. And that's what clearly all of this reordering of the primaries is about. It's to prevent the media from having to run cover like this for Biden if he fails. And if a potential outsider candidate authentically connects with the people, including diverse constituencies of Democrats all across the country. These diverse constituencies that, by the way, these people seem to only bring up opportunistically when they want votes. Did you know, for instance, that although the minority population is small in Iowa, Bernie dominated it? Bernie volunteers stayed outside of meatpacking plants, which employed predominantly East African workers who got off at like 4 a.m. and spoke to them in the wee small hours of the morning about their concerns and about how they deserved more out of life. That's why Bernie succeeded in the state. That's how we got caucus pictures like this. See all those black and brown people on the left? They're voting for Bernie. See that one white woman on the right? That's the lone Warren voter at the caucus site. If Biden cared about black voters, he wouldn't try to rig the election by moving up when South Carolina voted. He'd maybe try delivering on some of his campaign promises. Remember the promise that if black folks delivered Georgia, he'd send out $2,000 checks? By electing John and the Reverend, you can make an immediate difference in your own lives, the lives of the people all across this country, because their election will put an end to the block in Washington, that $2,000 stimulus check, that money that will go out the door immediately, tell people who are in real trouble. Georgians have delivered now twice, and they're still waiting. Do you remember the promise to cancel all student debt for graduates of historically black colleges and universities? I do. Remember the promise to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act? He said he'd get it done by year, the, the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. That would have been spring of 2021. Still hasn't happened. Earlier this week, we covered the horrific murder of Daniel Shaver by the police and the fact that his cop executioner got off without ever seeing a day behind bars. We were deeply moved by that story. And I can tell from the audience response that you were too. I can't think of a better time to take up the issue of qualified immunity. But at risk of sounding too much like Kanye, Biden doesn't seem to care too much about black people, at least once we've cast our ballots. <laughs> Focusing on when South Carolina votes instead of why South Carolinians are some of the poorest, most, most healthcare insecure people in the entire country is just the latest cynical ploy that is causing Democrats to flee the party. It's disgusting. And the worst part is, it'll probably work. I think that's uh, very fair, <laughs> a lot of that. Uh, I mean, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the primary shuffle um, yesterday, and yeah, I don't see how anyone conclude that it's not just the administration trying to stave off a primary challenge and then and then perhaps lay the ground for Kamala to be 
coronated. Yeah, which, you know, it's not clear to me that even with all of the finagling here that South Carolinas will line up for, South Carolinians rather, will line up for Kamala in the same way that they've lined up for Biden. And frankly, I think that Biden not following through, Clyburn, you know, going to bat for Biden, a lot of these people going to bat for Biden, and then Biden so flagrantly uh, undermining his own campaign promises, there's going to be diminishing returns every time they try to run this play. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that reordering South Carolina is going to necessarily have the same benefits that they think it's going to, well, especially if it's someone like Kamala Harris. And isn't there diminishing returns and at this point no returns for the just lazily deployed in every situation accusation of racism for, oh, you're against this? Well, okay, racist. I mean, look, it, Jesus. It, it works with a certain segment of the population. But look, yeah. Shakir, say what you want first Muslim campaign manager, yeah. and like none of that mattered when it came to Bernie. Bernie had the most diverse staff. Bernie had, uh, you know, record-setting um, principles on mm-hmm. his team. Bernie was himself Jewish, didn't keep him from getting smeared in a lot of really disgusting ways with anti-Semitic tropes. None of it mattered. There was, I remember very vividly the day that Elizabeth Warren gave her big interview about how hurt she was that people had been using snake emojis under her social media posts. Upset that she, oh, she had saw stated, that? Oh, I, I got caught. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that day she sat down like really like a almost tearful interview with Rachel Maddow. The day before, or the, or that week, someone had brought a, a swastika flag to a Bernie rally. Not a peep from the media. Right. So, you, I mean, you, you, you see, what, there are reams and reams of clips. We had to shorten it because there was, there was such a meltdown when, when Bernie looked like he was actually going to win some things. When, especially when he won Nevada, people lost their minds because it disrupted the narrative that only white people liked Bernie. Because you couldn't look at Nevada and you couldn't look at what happened with the culinary union rank and file. Sure. And you couldn't look at what they were saying about how they wanted health care and how Bernie, they connected with Bernie's immigrant story and, and pretend that this was some kind of like white hipster bro that was driving this movement. Apropos of absolutely nothing, this reminds me of one of my favorite Trump tweets of all time when he responded to Elizabeth Warren. Uh, she was doing some kind of like live video, maybe a cooking video or something from her home. And she said, I, I thank my husband for being here. Trump responded, well, of course he's there. He's supposed to be there. It's his house. He lives there. <laughs> Very good job, Brianna. We'll have thank more you, rising Abby. right after this. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is under investigation. The House Ethics Committee released a statement Wednesday saying it was extending its inquiry of AOC, but it was not clear what specifically they're investigating. The statement did note that the probe doesn't mean she has committed any violation. AOC was first hit with a complaint last year over attending fashion's biggest night, the Met Gala, in 2021. Always remember her dress. Conservative watchdog group the National Legal and Policy Center alleged in their complaint that she improperly accepted tickets for herself and for her boyfriend. But according to House rules, members are allowed to accept free tickets to charity events from event organizers, which would presumably insulate her from any violation as the Metropolitan Museum of Art did invite her. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't the only Congress member there, even. No. So we got to be very careful with it. I'm going to read the whole statement. Pursuant to House rule, this is from the acting chairwoman of the Ethics Committee. Pursuant to a House rule, the acting chairwoman and acting ranking member of the Committee on Ethics have jointly decided to extend the matter regarding Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which was transmitted to the committee. The committee notes that the mere fact of a referral or an extension and the mandatory disclosure of such an extension does not indicate that any violation has occurred. I so we, we're going to be very careful. We, yeah. we don't really know what the, I, so it looks like they're looking into that matter right. still because it, it's been extended but based on the that information we've been given I would not 
predict that it would be determined that she violated any yeah. rule. Maybe there's something else, but we know absolutely nothing. And I was curious about, about why this. they made an announcement at all, given that making an announcement without giving any meat to it sets her up for some bad faith criticisms potentially, yes. nothing comes of it. But you're pointing out that there's a mandatory disclosure requirement. It yes. uh, does clarify why they would do this in the first instance. Look, it's tough for AOC. I'm not one to have any interest in criticizing her for some of the bad faith reasons that are out there, and there are a lot out there. But, you know, this is also a time where she's under a lot of scrutiny from the left from what is perceived to be a really bad vote on the uh uh, TA for the railroad workers, where the Biden administration, which has gotten a lot of criticism, even from unlikely sources, including Jake Tapper, has really you know railroaded these workers and prevented their from them from having the leverage that all other union members have to go on strike and to get some really basic demands here, just seven days of sick leave. Uh, where they currently have none. So the fact that squad members, all but one, uh, Rashida Tlaib was the only one who didn't, in fact, go ahead and vote for this temporary agreement, um, you know, it seems to be a violation, a very fundamental violation of what a progressive, what a self-described socialist would do, which is to, to stand with workers. You know, this was a subject of uh, an episode I just put out today on my own podcast. Yeah, you tangled with uh, my former co-host, Ryan Grimm. <laughs> former co-host, my former boss, Ryan Grimm. It was a very tense conversation because um, Seattle City Councilwoman uh, Shama Sawant, who is also a socialist and someone who's held in very high regard as a model of what a lot of leftists hoped the squad would be like, engaged with him directly over the utility and, and, and you know, how the wiseness of this, this vote. It was, it was very spicy, and I think it's increasingly difficult for progressives to defend these kinds of actions when we've seen this playbook happen over and over again with the $15 minimum wage and force the vote. And in a vote like this, where they did not have to vote for the TA for the sick leaves to get to um, to, to, to the Senate, as I discussed in a, in a radar last week, it really seems kind of unjustifiable. So right. she's taking it from all sides right now. Um, she always does. She's just such an object of... She's a fixation for um, many critics everywhere. The conservative media knows that talking about her is, gets viewers and clicks and et cetera. Um, and it's a shame because, you know, there's, there's, when there is a substantive criticism, yeah. I think there are a lot of people on the left who would frankly want to withhold it because they don't want to add to the pylon. And, and I don't know that that is helping the movement. It's not helping AOC to be able to assess what she should maybe attend to and what is bad faith. There's a tendency, I think, when you get unfairly attacked a lot, when you're very online, to want to say everything is bad faith. And ultimately, that can prevent you from offering some correctives that might be necessary. She got some good faith, I would say, criticism about her views on Ukraine or if she was going to do anything to rein in unending spending, U.S. spending for the Ukrainian defense that she kind of deflected, didn't want to talk about at all a number of times. And, and that's a big issue, too. So many of these figures, the, the, the bad faith attacks can fester because they don't make themselves accessible to media. Yeah. And they especially don't make themselves accessible to, I'd argue, the friendly left media that initially put them on the map in the first instance that is prepared to offer the good faith critique. So all they hear is the bad faith stuff that's coming through the more conservative outlets. We'd be happy to have her on, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I, I wanted to note also... This committee, this ethics committee, recently sanctioned uh, Representative Madison Cawthorn, outgoing Representative Madison Cawthorn, was, was not reelected, uh, for a crypto involvement. Uh, they said he, he benefited financially while purchasing a cryptocurrency that he was promoting. Um, the, the, this committee report said, while cryptocurrency promotion, particularly of a meme coin, may be a novel issue before the committee, whether a member may promote an asset in which that member has a financial interest is not a novel question, and he was fined 
$14,000 in order to pay that to charity. He planned to make donations to a spinal cord and paralysis treatment center and a gun rights group, he said in a statement. What, what a world. The fact that there's so much latitude for Congress members. I mean, he got sanctioned, but the vast majority of the kind of financial entanglements betting on the stock market when they obviously have insider information, the fact that that is frankly legal and that and Democrats will defend And this is, this is likely it. very small ball compared to what Absolutely. many of our people what, have been You know, been the Pelosi's in. are up to and all of those kinds sure. of things. And then being criticized for it, having legislation to actually change the status quo and saying, no, actually, this it would be yeah. unfair. Even, even Ro Khanna, who's had a lot of good takes recently, defended. He said it's, it would be unfair to prevent spouses from being able to, to trade stock just because their partner gets involved in politics. You know, I mean, come on. Every other industry, as a lawyer, yeah. as a banker, you know, you get a, a, a lot of statements telling you, you have to put this in a blind trust. You can't do this. You can't do that. And it's a, absurd that of all people, Congress people would be pushing back against this sort of thing. But Cawthorn just did it in a too clumsy, too <laughs> obvious sort of way. Here's a little clip of today's bad faith uh, in the discussion with Ryan Grimm. Are you saying that those of us who are standing up for workers, we have the responsibility, you have the responsibility. Yes, you have to find a worker, one worker. They have to justify why it is that they voted to break a strike knowing that they literally had zero to gain from it. The the workers felt they had something to gain from it. Maybe the workers don't want to be part of this fantasy play. the, the workers, what like, actually, play? what are you talking about? To get rid of the Railway Labor Act? If socialists and progressives would have voted only for a bill with paid sick leave, who in their right mind, who's on the side of the railroad workers, would be blaming them for that? This is complete nonsense. The rank and file organizes inside BMWED. They Ryan, push this strategy, you, you cannot and you're like, well, there's, there's some conservative, and you smear them as conservative. On what no. basis are you smearing that these I workers? Not, I do not appreciate you obscuring what I said. Look, if if they had done what you said, like vote no, and then they vote yes, wouldn't uh, the, wouldn't their critics be saying, oh, that was just a performative no vote, and they you know they still voted for the sick leave, which then is a fig leaf that 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 covers this thing that then allows it to get over the Senate. Which then, uh, and then the Senate takes it out. No, so, nobody, nobody's no, no, saying that is, about. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Brianna. This is a complete straw man argument that has no basis in reality. If socialists and progressive vote would had voted only for a bill with paid sick leave, who in their right mind, you know, who's on the side of the railroad workers, would be blaming them for that? This is complete nonsense. And it's really just a way to, again, well, wait a minute. I, away from the reality that nobody in their right mind, Ryan, maybe despite being a political analyst, you thought that the Senate, there was any chance of the Senate voting yes on a basic leave bill. But, but as uh, Brianna, you were saying, workers in their right mind understood that there was zero chance of this uh, passing in the Senate. So what they did, actually what they actually did is what's performative, which is where they gave cover to the Biden administration and to the Republicans to uh, to break the strike and to sell out the workers. And yes, Biden did betray and the betrayal began with the Biden administration. There is no question about that. But it is commentators like yourself who will then, yeah, you know, at any moment, whoever is, whoever among the Democratic Party is, um, uh, you know, is, is in the crossfire of workers, uh, justifiably, 
then those people are being going to be um, you know going to be protected. So when when the fire was against workers were angry against AOC and Jayapal, then suddenly AOC starts tweet, tweeting, and then you know you all start defending her by saying, oh well, you know the union leader unions wanted it. But as I was clarifying before you came, it wasn't union rank and file, and I don't know which rank and file you spoke to, but it is yeah. just complete nonsense to say that railroad workers who are just struggling for their basic survival were somehow going to be accepting this. Well, We'll continue to follow this if there is indeed an update uh, with this AOC investigation. Absolutely. And we'll have more rising for you right after this. The House of Representatives is hinting at potential legal action against ex-Twitter and FBI lawyer James Baker, who is involved in suppressing the 2020 media reports related to the Hunter Biden laptop story. According to Fox News, Republican leaders suggested that all options are on the table when asked whether they would pursue legal action or issue subpoenas related to Baker. A House Judiciary spokesperson told the outlet in an email to, quote, stay tuned. Twitter CEO Elon Musk announced Tuesday that he had fired Baker for his possible role in suppression of important information, uh, of information rather important to public dialogue. Congress is already uh, Congress is already weighing in on the matter. Tuesday, Congressman James Comer, who is set to be the next chairman of the House Oversight Committee, sent a letter to Baker asking him to appear before the committee to assess, quote, big tech's control of free discourse and information. And Georgia Congressman Andrew Clyde introduced the Free Speech Defense Act, which he says will end government by proxy censorship. Hmm. So a lot happening here. Robbie, am I, am I wrong to think that this, um, the kind of threat of legal action is a, is a little bit vague? I mean, what did they... What do they what do they hope to pin James Baker with other than kind of having an ideological conflict of interest over right. the Hunter Biden story? Which yeah, I, I like don't unless there's he violated some kind of disclosure rule uh, as a post federal employee, some kind of thing there. I, I don't see what you would get him because he, he did what we're upset that he did. He did in his capacity as a private citizen, as an employee of Twitter. And, and that can be bad and wrong. It's not a violation of law. They can subpoena him. They can have. They can bring him before Congress, like they've brought before Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai and all the tech people to ask questions, and that might be productive. Although I tend to think those hearings end up being a little show trialy, and mm -hmm. it, it often turns out that the members of Congress have no idea what they're talking about on tech-related issues and are asking them, and then end up asking them paradoxical things or co contradictory things. Mm -hmm. where they'll say, how, how dare you, Republicans saying, how dare you censor and silence us, and Democrats saying, how dare you allow misinformation on the platform, and the tech people are like, okay, what do you want us to do then? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't have a lot of faith in, in, that, uh, in that sort of approach, although I am certainly curious what this guy, you know, how his, his FBI connections how his law enforcement background made him um, uh, 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 amenable to the narrative that this was going to be a fake Russian camp, uh, plot to undermine elections and that the hacked material justification was good, which he did. We have an email from him saying exactly that. Uh, but in general, the right approach is, and I just looked at this bill that, uh, that the Georgia Congressman Andrew Clyde introduced, the Free Speech Defense Act, and this is the approach. If you're mad about censorship on social media, this is the approach that needs to be taken because there's nothing you can, there's very little you can do actually to the companies themselves because they are private companies. You could change reg various regulations. You could break them up. You could do all these things. It's not going to solve the underlying problems of censorship. It's going to change how these companies work. But this bill, which this is the approach we have to take, prohibit, it, it looks at the federal 
entities, the people who do currently work for the government and would say that they cannot have communications with social media companies encouraging them to take down content or stuff like that. That you could do. You could... You could forbid government employees from doing these things. You can't, provi- you can't prohibit Twitter moderators from doing these things. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my, my interest would be in a certain level of transparency. You know, I can see a world where it's perfectly reasonable for a more informed party, not saying that the government is necessarily the more informed party, but could potentially, in a national security moment or something, be able to advise. I don't know about a prohibition against it. I think part of the issue here is that it was all... Undercover, um, it wasn't clear who was and doing the advice. Political. And the advice itself was political and, and, wrong, and wrong, and in a way that couldn't really be scrutinized because it was so private. Um, and I am also, as I talked about in a recent radar this week, concerned about who else is going to be comprising the internal panels that are making these kinds of decisions. Because as we've seen, you know, Baker worked for Twitter. This this wasn't a situation where an outsider was making these decisions, for better or worse, whatever his influences were from having worked at the FBI, whatever his connections were. This was a Twitter employee, ultimately, who was making these decisions, who persisted in being a Twitter employee right up until a second ago when he finally got fired by Elon Musk. So, you know, the problem is that we live in a society where there's a lot of elite capture because that's who works at these kind of institutions. Dr. Fauci's daughter works at these institutions. Everybody wants to work at Twitter and Facebook, especially as, as young, mm-hmm. like Gen Z millennial types coming up. And you're going to persist in having this problem even if you don't have kind of official lobbying from the state going on. So I'm very, very interested to see who gets put on these kind of boards that Musk has said he is going to establish to try to, try to adjudicate. But isn't it interesting that liberal progressive people, Democrats or democratically inclined people, not literal democratic politicians, but people of that persuasion, the, the sort of people who staff these companies used to have, or at least in the Bush years, had this kind of reflexive distrust of law enforcement and national intelligence, et cetera, that seems to have fallen by the, way, the wayside a little bit, where now you know, if, if you have a if you have an FBI person telling telling you or telling your 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 woke company your, that that oh this is here's some intelligence we have be on the lookout for this like oh yeah okay that makes sense but they used to say but maybe you're lying or wrong or nakedly well, political I, or just bad at your jobs I well I think that first of all the state the 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 deep state the State Department the, the FBI CIA the, like the that kind of apparatus has always been less partisan and that it has been establishment protecting. Oh, certainly. And when your when your party is in power, you like yeah. the FBI. When your party is not in power, you don't like the FBI. At least that's the kind of um, really reductive perspective that mainstream establishment politicos have always had. The left has had its critique of the FBI and the CIA forever. Um, and I understand that there's some parts of the right have as well. But I, I don't, I, I mean, I know I'm not trying to split yeah. hairs here. I do think it's meaningful. Like, you can sit here and say this is partisan, 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 and these are libs trying to take over, and libs did this, and libs suppressed Hunter Biden. But you're going to wake up one day to a sore, like a sorry reality when Republicans are doing the exact same nonsense. And so I think you should nip it in the bud and really try to put some policies in place that are going to be neutral and stop trying to see this, stop trying to look at this through an ideological lens. I have no interest in defending liberals by saying this isn't really about liberals. Liberals, I got to say, for the millionth time, make my life more hell every single day than conservatives ever could dream of doing. I have no, there's no love lost between me and liberals, but I'm looking at this and I'm looking at a system that is easily manipulated by any number of people. Mm-hmm. The fact that, the, you know, so how many times do we have to see a, a, um, a, 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 a 
a Politico who has been in office through like four different presidents, who has been there through four different administrations, over and over and over yeah. again. And so now, you know, he and Trump fell out, so he's a liberal guy, and everybody hates. You know, if, if I remember yeah. earlier in the in the thing in, in the pandemic. Trump was very pro-Fauci. Fauci was my guy. I'm taking credit. It, none of it means anything. At the end of the day, do we like what happened? Do we think decisions were made in an ethical way, in a transparent way, based on real information? Like, that's the only question, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. And the fact that I think Elon Musk also has to take some accountability for if Baker is such a terrible person— keeping him on his staff. He buys Twitter ostensibly. His stated purpose is to correct exactly these kinds of issues. And it took this happening, you know, what, a month into his ownership of Twitter? We just, we just disagree on this Before he one. realizes that this guy is even there? I don't think that's a crazy amount of time to have... If, if, I were print, if I were spending $44 billion ostensibly because I believe so strongly in free speech and the Hunter Biden laptop story suppression was the primary motivator for me making this $44 billion investment, then I feel like it would be a pretty high priority immediately to start to investigate who it was that was making those kinds of decisions. If that was an oversight, then I think that it's completely fair, but you cannot try to say, oh, I was a banker, banker, I can't believe this happened. This is a disaster. Like, you have to take some accountability and some, you know, some introspection this there. actually goes to a point that is, I think is worth making, which is that conservative media for all its contrarian nature does not there and there are obviously exceptions but does not have the reporting capabilities that mainstream and progressive media do um I'm criticizing them. They don't have enough people doing an effective job. Whereas this the fact that so this person Jim Baker former FBI employee I mean this is something we're kind of like finding out in real time that Elon found out in real time if it was the other way around you could have had uh, a, a, a mainstream organization could have, you know, written about the secret conservative working inside Twitter at the highest level. Like that kind of reporting, that those kinds of exposés, don't happen at the same level on the right because conservative media is often, I'm afraid to say, sorry to say, not afraid to say, sorry to say, asleep at the wheel when it comes to big stories like this. Like they have to drop into their laps. Well, look, there are conservative reporters at all of these major papers, much to the chagrin, frankly, of many of the liberal reporters at all of these major papers. What do you mean? Washington Post, New York Times, they have any number of conservative reporters at these papers as well who can do Not these really. kind of deep dives. They have very few. Even The very Intercept. Few. I mean, there's people at The Intercept who aren't wild about the fact that, like, Jim Risen is a, is a, on a staff reporter there. You know, like, they're... They, they exist, whether or not they choose to spend their time it is doing this There's kind like of a Republican faculty member. Yes, there are some. It's very, very few. Well, I, I can't. I think the real issue is that the, what they're prioritizing. And if they want to keep doing deep dives into, you know, whether there's a drag show somewhere that they didn't like, yeah. then that's, that's a reporting choice. There's no, no like, I agree with you. There's, I, there's, I, there's, I'm there's no with like you. magic wand that says you work at the New York Times now, you have uh, access to do deep reporting on stories. These are choices that these very well-funded, I might add. No, I'm, I'm agreeing with right, you. Conservative. I, I agree with you. They're not, they're, their choices are not always good. And yes, they're, they get obsessed with things that are a little trivial and, they're, and they, they don't get the job done. I, I agree with you. That's All the right. criticism I'm making. Okay. It needs, to be, it needs to be more focused. And it's, you can criticize the New York Times for its slant or its ideology, whatever you, but they are doing work that uh, a lot of people in right-wing media could could learn from the mm. craft. Yeah, I, I would love to see that. I would love to see more deeply researched um, reporting because 
Tucker Democracy Carlson said dies that. in darkness. Tucker Carlson said that years and years and years and years ago. He gave a speech at CPAC mm. where he said we should be trying to emulate the New York Times because mm. they do great reporting. Mm. And uh, at the time, he got booed, but he was totally right. Mm. Well, now's your chance. Uh, there's, a, there's a hole in the New York Times market right now with this ongoing strike. So we'll see if conservatives can uh, fill the void. More rising after this. Next Tuesday, the House Financial Services Committee will hold a hearing about the demise of the defamed crypto company FTX. In a surprise move, committee chair Maxine Waters told fellow Democrats that she will not subpoena the former CEO of the company, Sam Bakeman-Fried, to testify before the committee, but that she hopes he will do so voluntarily. He has yet to agree to that. Meanwhile, Bankman Freed revealed he hired Jelaine Maxwell's lawyer, Mark S. Cohen, to represent him. While the former CEO is being investigated by the SEC and DOJ, he is not currently facing any criminal charges. Joining us now to discuss is senior broadcast contributor for Yahoo Finance, Kevin Cirilli. Welcome, Kevin. Great to be here. What a story this has taken. It's like choose your own adventure, Dungeons and Dragons. Right, well, let's, <laughs> let's, 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 start, let's start here. I was talking about Dungeons and Dragons before Robin we started Barry this. I don't really know what that game is, but... <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, I was like, all right, we can make a parallel. Well, I would rather spend this segment explaining it. Instead, we should right. talk about the issue at hand. Just as complicated as cryptocurrency. But go ahead. Well, well here's one of the big uh, takeaways from that lead-in right yeah. there. People are reading into the fact that uh, Maxine, Maxine Waters isn't calling uh, for a subpoena of Sam Bankman-Fried as perhaps some indication that there is some sympathy there because he was such a prolific Democratic Party donor. Is that a correct implication no, to me? No, I think CNBC had a, had a great scoop with this. But, but and, and CNBC's reporting also suggests that he might still be subpoenaed. She's mm-hmm. left that, that window open, as has the likely new House Financial Services Committee Chairman Patrick McHenry in the new Congress. And meanwhile, their counterpart committee in the Senate, the Senate Banking Committee, uh, chaired by Sherrod Brown, progressive from Ohio, has also said, look, uh, we're, he's going through some legal uh, procedures right now. And once that is finalized, he likely will uh, come in and testify. He himself has said that he will likely sit before the committees on both parts, but perhaps just the timing right now isn't going to align. I would be stunned if he doesn't testify. He's been very willing so far yeah. to just kind of talk to reporters, reporters uh, DMs, the New York yep. Times, Vox, uh, in ways that I have to imagine are infuriating his attorneys. Or Now maybe he's brought a competent attorney on to the Glenn Maxwell's <laughs> no, no attorney. No longer his parents, who of course are Stanford attorneys and who have apparently helped him with his Yeah, defense. everyone would tell you shut up, stop talking, stop giving away information unless you have to. Uh, but he keeps, he seemed to keep going at it with this, I'm very smart, I can explain this to people in a way that they'll stop blaming me, I'll, I'll, I'll explain why you would have made the decisions I made too, and I don't know that that's working for him. Well, and he's dragging a lot of people into this. I mean, a $100 million deal allegedly that he wanted to get with Taylor Swift, her camp is denying this $55,000 worth of debt to Margaritaville. I oh. mean, there's just headline after headline, drip, drip, drip. But here in the Beltway, all of the focus is really centering, and I said this last time, on Gary Gensler, chairman of the SEC. Because remember, this is someone who back in October, I don't know if people remember this, remember when he fined Kim Kardashian? It was like $1.26 million for her advertising on social media Mm. platforms Mm. for cryptocurrency exchanges. Well, now you have a lot of progressives who he had been banking would be backing him and supporting him. People like Senator Elizabeth Warren and others who are saying, 
hey, Chairman Gensler, what's going on here? You went after celebrities when you potentially should have been looking mm -hmm. at SBF. And as a result of that, he's caught in the middle of progressive circles and facing pressure, mind you, from Republicans as well. Now, my colleagues over at Yahoo Finance did an interview with Gensler, and he essentially said, quote, exchanges shouldn't be running a broker, dealer, or a hedge fund and an exchange. So what that essentially means is he's alleging that what happened was SBF, this guy, was betting against the folks who were investing into the cryptocurrency exchange. So quite literally trying to have his cake and eat it too. Congressman Richie Torres yeah. sent a letter today. A Democrat. Ref yeah, a Democrat referencing the Kim Kardashian yep. thing you just said, saying, does this show that the, the, SEC, uh, the SEC is distracted because they went through with this Kim Kardashian thing and they missed this much bigger story. Precisely. And then you have a Democrat point. Of course, that and out, he was is, in the crypto, but he, and also he was, uh, wasn't Torres also like a, a famously pro-crypto Democrat as well? I thought well, there, he was. You look, and I, and I think that the, the biggest question for this new and emerging technology for the last decade has been how to best regulate it. And you've got the SEC, the CFTC, DOJ all looking into this, and you have bipartisan legislation. So people like Senator Cynthia Loomis, as well as Kirsten Gillibrand, who have called essentially for legislation that would allow the CFTC to regulate this as a commodity. That's a very simple concept. I know it sounds complex, but it's very, it's, it's very simple in the sense that a commodity is something that ensures that there are rules of the road, that the regulators can define this, can look at this, and be able to precisely prescribe the regulation similarly to any other financial holding that you have. For whatever reason, this town has not woken up on how to best regulate crypto. So I think that's the problem. Yeah. The idea that people are going after Kim Kardashian or talking about these other things, when and it shouldn't have been a surprise that there was this conflict of interest between the uh, the, the Alameda and uh, SBX in the first uh, SFX in the first place. So why is it that now everyone is waking up to it and acting like, no. oh, I'm sorry, I was so naive? They all actually sound like Sam Bankman Fried actually does in all of these interviews, where he puts on the posture of you know a new kid on the block, a young guy who didn't quite seem to realize what was going on. When it seems obvious to everyone, especially SBF, who was at the time that he's complaining about the government's inability to regulate, going behind the scenes, trying to put money into primaries to make sure that whoever wins, there is someone in Congress who is friendly to his regulation regime that frankly would have allowed him to have the laissez-faire operation that ultimately brought him down. Right. And I think to that point, I mean, and, and you both know this, I mean, this is Washington. And so any successful business entrepreneur, no matter what their political leanings are, and there are examples on both sides, are going to do precisely what FTX and and Sam did in <laughs> this <accidents>. situation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it, but it does point to a broader, broader, uh, I would argue, conversation that folks on both sides of the aisle has had. And let's focus on Senator Elizabeth Warren for a second. Mm. Because remember, she came to power and created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau back in 2008 while that was coming, uh, and TARP. And we all remember that. We all also remember culturally Martha Stewart going to prison. Yep. And you had progressives who were saying, hey, wait a minute, why are you going after Martha Stewart mm. and not going after these bank CEOs? And mm. are, are they too big to jail? Mm. And so I, Martha Stewart didn't even do anything wrong. Well, you know, and, and look, I think the, the, the parallel. She tried to defend herself to investigators, so then they, you know, they got her on the procedural crime as they always do. Mm. 
well, you know, but the parallel here is, I think, essentially, are there regulators who are trying to go after celebrities in this case and took their eye off the ball? Mm. And so I think there's a lot of pressure for Gary Gensler, and I think that the pressure is going to intensify precisely even once we have a divided Congress next year mm. where Republicans are going to focus on him, not just on FTX, but also on what they would argue is ESG. We all saw the Vanguard headline yesterday. And in addition to that, a split Congress with uh, you know Democrats controlling the Senate now. Well, following the FTX scandal, NFT sales have dropped to the lowest they've been since July of 2021, a 16-month low. Sales have continuously dropped since April of this year. Uh, is this the end of the halcyon period for this, these kinds of um, technology? You know, I don't think it's the end for the technology. I think that in terms of the path forward for the next two to five years, I think everyone's going to be looking to see how the central bank, the Federal Reserve, and Jay Powell, how they proceed with putting out some type of analysis, some type of rules of the road, or adopting a U.S. digital currency or mm -hmm. and, and kind of how that goes. I think that not just the U.S. economy, but the global economy in particular are waiting for the central bank to broadcast the path forward for a digital currency. Separately, I think you did see this with some of the big banks who have tried to get into the digital currency space. I think they're also now waiting uh, to see what the Fed does. Uh, because, look, the, 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 the biggest question, and, and Gary Gensler had said, you know, look, we have the rules. The, the, their argument is we have the rules, but if, if cryptocurrencies and digital assets are not actually registering with the feds, then they're going to have to put more teeth and go after them if they're not complying with the regulations. Either way, I think that all would agree this is an antiquated system that never really got going. And so there's a lot of pressure now because had this uh, been based in the United States, for example, or even taken more of a hold in the United States, this could have had a domino effect on the economy, which would have been a disaster. I, I saw this great um, supercut of uh, media being just overly fawning toward SBF uh, over time. Let's play some of that. Sam Bankman Freed is really becoming the industry's lifeline during a crisis lately. I'm fascinated, endlessly fascinated with Sam Bankman-Fried's role in all of this. You've been now described as the JP Morgan, if you will, of the crypto business. A lot of people called you um, the savior of crypto, the patron saint of crypto, the Michael Jordan of crypto, if you will. Sam Bankman-Fried. Sam Bankman-Fried, the JP Morgan of Fried. SBF, JPM. Do you know SBF? I think it's cool that the guy has just initials, uh, SBF. Some on Twitter calling him the hero right now of the industry. There's comparisons to Warren Buffett back in the financial crisis. Or if you go way back, JP Morgan in the panic. <laughs> Jeez, does he walk on water or something in these interviews? Yeah, that's like a, a criminal level of puffery here. I mean, this is an industry where a perception really can drive the actual value of no. these kinds of goods. And it's hard to not see the media as complicit in what is now feeling very much like a Ponzi scheme when you look at clips well, like that. Well, it's clearly a Ponzi scheme. But, I, you know, look, I think I think it, it's a delicate balance, right? Because this is, in our country, you want to celebrate creative entrepreneurship. And at the same time, you want to make sure that the regulators are enforcing the rules of the road. And so, you you know, I, I think by the same token, it's really the media that helped drive some of this exposure for the mistakes that FTX had made. And so that transparency is going to be crucial. I again bring media it back. companies being among the his the biggest recipients of, of donations from, exactly. from SBF, right? But precisely when you look at this broader generation and the digitization of everything, uh, and in this case specifically currency and devaluing currency, many would argue. 
this should be a concern, not just for, for FTX, but look at the other uh, digital asset currencies that are not beholden to U.S. regulators. And so if you're an American taxpayer, do you want to be invested in a, 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 a country that has a digital asset that is essentially trying to devalue democracy? And so that, I think, is the broader question that regulators really need to grapple with. And can you have a situation in the new Congress where likely chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, McHenry, a, a conservative, and Chairman Brown, a prominent progressive uh, in the Senate banking, can they get on the same page to prevent this from happening again? Mm. Again, and I, I say this, and I feel like a broken record, but Gary Gensler is just as an important uh, person in this story and in these policies and regulations uh, as, as Sam is for, from FTX. Mm. Very interesting. Well, Kevin yeah. Cirilli, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have more rising right after this. Well, the New York Times is facing a massive union walkout today. About 1,100 union staffers were supposed to have halted all work by midnight for a whole 24 hours and are said to start picketing outside the New York Times offices at 1 p.m. Union staffers are striking for better wages and remote work policies. And though they've been going back and forth with the New York News Guild, they have not reached an agreement, missing the December 8th deadline. The strike, which is the biggest protest of its kind at the paper in 40 years, is intended to show how important its reporting is. Staffers are calling on readers to join them by avoiding visiting the paper on all its platforms and to turning to local news instead. We reached out to the New York Times for comment on the walkout, and in a statement to Rising, the spokesperson said they are ready to resume negotiations and that it's disappointing that such extreme action is being taken when they're not at an impasse. They went on to say, quote, the News Guild's proposal, which would add more than $100 million in additional costs over the life of the contract, would make it difficult to sustain our investment in journalism. We're committed to continuing to serve our readers and are prepared to do so without disruption. Well, it's worth noting uh, in that statement, they point to the cost of meeting the demands of, of these writers. And this is reporting from The Washington Post. I had to go in and make sure I could find some coverage of this outside of The New York Times. Uh, they point out that although there is a very challenging media environment right now, I think everyone is well aware of that, executives at The New York Times said in their latest earnings call that they had grown the newsroom and projected a total adjusted operating profit of between $320 million and $330 million by the end of the year. Some staffers argue that they should share more of the fruits of this recent success after enduring stagnant wages and belt tightening during leaner times for the company, quote, that's where it feels more uh, feels more than just a matter of disagreement on numbers, but really a slap in the face, said film critic A.O. Scott. We have devoted so much of our time, energy, work and love to this paper, which seems unwilling to recognize or reward that contribution. It's, it's interesting. Obviously, we are in a media community ourselves. Uh, I've seen an enormous amount of support um, from kind of the left media community that I am in, despite having a lot of substantive disagreements with the way the coverage goes down over at the New York Times. I think a lot of those are perceived to be you know, sort of management decisions, and there are a lot of individual good people who work over there. And it is frustrating to see in this context, as in so many others, that when profits are sky high, the profit share never seems to trickle down to the people whose work 
enabled those profits in the very first Look, place. the New York Times is an outlier in the media environment. They've done very, very, very well for themselves in this, uh, in this environment of chaos where so many newsrooms, media organizations having to pivot, having to lay off people. Um, they've, just, they've just figured it out, and they're killing it, frankly. Yeah. Um, that said, I, I think my substantive agree, uh, disagreements with the New York Times often is disagreements with mm. reporters and staff members um, I, with a kind of woke tyranny um, that has been weaponized against other employees of the New York Times on many occasions, including um, editors that were, that were let go over the decision to publish the Tom Cotton op-ed, um, that, uh, that excellent coronavirus reporter we've had on to discuss monkeypox, who was, you know, run out by your fellow employees, you know, not liking his strident tone or things he said on a field trip. Was he fired trip. or did he leave? Um, he, he, he was pressed out by the, uh, by the employees wanting him gone. Yeah, he, he was, was, he he was fired? fired. I think he was fired. I, I'm, not, I'm not. If he's fired, he was fired. It's just that it is true that in a lot of these instances, people quit their jobs and mm-hmm. then accuse the business, the organization of having fired them when that wasn't exactly the case. They just felt social pressure right. to conform. Okay, but the idea of the envi- workplace environment being hostile or impossible to continue is a progressive concept, so... Right, but that's a different thing. Like, for example, with the Tom Cotton, you know, there were people who disagreed with that op-ed. There were also people at the institution who chose to run the op-ed mm-hmm. and defended it to the end of days. So, you know, it's... The op-ed editor bad. was fired. Yeah, that, was fired that, that, that person yeah. was fired. But I, I don't know. Like, I, I do... Like, look, I, I disagree with a lot of these kind of decisions and with a lot of the individuals who work at these kinds of institutions as well. But I... I, I don't know. I, I'm frustrated by the perception, as a leftist who is very much blocked out of these spaces as well, I'm frustrated by the perception that there's a kind of a a, a left-leaning political bent here. And I know that's not what you're saying mm-hmm. exactly, but you're talking about more specifically on the culture wars, because it does seem to me to be more like an establishment gatekeeping, and that many of those decisions, those editorial decisions, are being made by people who aren't, for example, you know, the labor reporters that we interview. Um, so the person I referred to, Don McNeil, was he was not fired. He did resign, uh, but he was punished for what went down, and so then he felt he had to resign. How was he punished? I mean, I have to go. I'm sorry, I don't mean to... Greater into the details. (laughs) To quiz you on this, the point of the matter is that I think that no one can dispute um, the value of having major media institutions that that have the resources to do deep investigations, the likes of which local media and smaller organizations, unfortunately, just don't have, because we have had this kind of um, corporatization of the media sphere where a lot of the local news um, uh, outlets have had to shut Mm -hmm. down. And the only people who can really fly reporters out to localities and do the deep dives and the longer-term reporting that are so necessary to keep the public informed are places like the New York Times. So we're in a little bit of a vice grip here where we're now forced to rely on them and we absolutely you know want the people who work there to be paid for the There was some labor. reporting in Semaphore the new um, uh, publication actually started by uh, Ben Smith the former New York Times uh, media columnist who was fantastic at the job before that he was head of BuzzFeed, Buzzfeed yeah. um, he was great columnist for the New York Times he left to start this new publication Semaphore and there was some reporting from him on um, uh, yeah, the, the workplace climate at the New York Times beginning to resemble a kind of elite college campus with bringing in kind of with uh, uh, inclusive inclusivity administrators who will have more and more say in what things are like all of those things having led to on college campuses in my view and other places a, a kind of uh, a very ideologically conformist 
uh, environment, uh, an environment that is not productive for collegial interactions or for free thinking or for all of those things. Th th that's the kind of stuff that makes someone like me worry about what would happen in the New York Times. And I don't know what role the union, in one version, a union could actually provide pushback from that, protecting employees who are you know, getting in trouble with these kinds of people. But it doesn't quite seem to work out that way mm. in some of the, or at least in the campus settings, um, because it's often other, other students, other young people, many of the times being yeah. young, getting well, mad about it, and then, they're, and then the administrators cave because they're mad. I, I don't know. There are very interesting dynamics here. That I then then the un, the labor element comes in. And, yeah, look, um, I, I want to say firmly, first and foremost, people are doing work; they should be compensated for their work, regardless yeah. of if I like them or regardless if I particularly, you know, well, New York appreciate the, are very the well compensated. Though you know that's true. They're not. They're not. And the point of the matter is, the executives they, are being extremely well compensated because they have running a very profitable industry, and we have to make a decision about whether or not, you know. For, for some reason, the idea of a wealth tax is anathema to me. Oh, we shouldn't put a cap on someone, how much someone could earn. But working people actually working and creating profits for a business, we think, well, if there's extra profits, they should be happy with what they're getting, and only the people at the top should have any access to that profit share. Mm -hmm. I think that's ridiculous. So it doesn't matter how much anybody makes. If they're earning profit and the business is getting increasingly profitable and there are these windfalls at the top, they want a bigger piece of that pie. And that's, if, 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 the, if, the, if the execs don't want to pay them, fine. They're going to have to figure out how to staff a whole new renewal room, this is what it means for, for, for labor to exercise their power. They're calling their bluff, and we'll see what happens. If they're really not worth all of that, they don't have to pay them, and the New York Times can go and find a bunch of scabs to break the strike, and people to replace these people like A.O. Scott and these big names that a lot mm -hmm. of folks have come to rely on and trust and to have a real affinity for. Um, I mean, that's the game. I mean, but some of those people, the people who big names whose names you know, I mean, those are people being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, which but, is all well, good for them. I mean, that's fine. I don't have any problem with that's that. But that's like that's taking these outlier cases and adding like the, the vast majority of people of the 1,100 people who are walking out, these beat reporters, people who are editors and other kinds of staffers are somehow to be, you know, we should have less sympathy for them because there's like a couple of outliers. Also, by the way, even relatively big names in journalism don't make a ton in the grand scheme of living, well, uh, uh, the grand scheme of things. about that. That's, that's not a direction I would, I would take my career for financial benefit. Well, as someone who really wanted to be a journalist, it did not, it was not financially viable. And I talked to a lot of people in the industry and it just was not, I mean, the, not a, the New York Times pays better than other. Yeah, as a relative meta, the, measure. And yeah. it's also earning a lot more than other people. Yeah. And that again, and it also has not very high quality people, sure. But so a lot of, some people in the journalism industry are frankly replaceable because, you know, assembling listicles is not a, is not a life skill that well, can't be taught to others. Right, but the New York Times isn't assembling listicles. That was more right. Ben Smith's uh, beat over at BuzzFeed. Right. No, no disrespect. Yeah. So again, if the prevailing attitude is that the value that is created by all of these workers really isn't all that in a bag of chips, well, then the New York Times can deal with the fact that all of its employers are gone now. And I, I applaud um, them for taking this, you know, very difficult mm -hmm. step to make because they are at the top of the industry. They are in these peak positions that I think a lot of them have been working very hard to get to their entire lives, and they're willing to put it on the line as a matter of principle, and the solidarity that's being shown across um, the New York Times is really terrific. Uh, apart from that's your view. My that's family, not my view, but... Yeah, apart from my family member inadvertently uh, sending me their Wordle score this morning, which I had to correct, I think the solidarity... Oh, was there a call out there? Was there a call out? Yeah, I had to be like, my friends, we're not supposed to be doing this today. Did you forget? Um, <laughs> but we, we will continue to follow the story and see what actually comes of this uh, labor action. We'll have more rising for you right after this.
The superintendent of Loudoun County Schools has been fired in response to a grand jury report over the handling of two sexual assaults by the same student. Last year, the father of one of the assault victims accused the school board of covering up his daughter's sexual assault. The suspect transferred to another school where he reportedly assaulted yet another girl. Mm. According to the just unsealed report, the school system failed at every juncture and missed multiple chances to prevent a second assault from happening. Both the Virginia Attorney General and Board of Supervisors Chair called for Zeitler's immediate termination. So we actually covered this on the show a lot before you were in the hosting chair. Um, I believe Emily Jashinsky, former host, covered it as well. And her and I clashed on this one, actually, not on the show, but in like separate things we'd written. Hmm. Uh, but what we do agree is there was a lot of uh, th- this was part of the um, the kind of pushback against school boards not paying attention to constituents and parents' concerns. And, uh, part of the vibe that helped elect Glenn Youngkin to sure. be governor of Virginia. Um, the issue specifically in this county, I mean, there were a number of issues of parents, you know, fed up with pandemic policies and curriculum and other things. But there was also a, a concern about a sexual assault that had occurred in a school. Um, and then it, it took on a very uh, sort of political framing because the assailant was had been described as perhaps gender fluid. And perhaps it was in a restroom that he he or she wasn't supposed to be in. Etc. Then it turned, and then there was another one that took place inside a classroom. So that one actually had nothing to do with it. the bathroom. Ended, to, from my mind, ended up seeming quite incidental. So we were trying to kind of brute force a anti-trans narrative uh, that I don't think quite fit the situation. But what did fit the situation? It was true. There were there were assault uh, accusations against this individual. It was not handled at all well by the superintendent. It was, uh, it was, it was misrepresented to the board, and, to the, and then there were parents asking about it, and they were treated very dismissively. So this is a huge indictment of, uh, of, of how this superintendent handled it for the grand jury to look at this and say, yeah, this was, this was, a, this was a screw-up. Mm-hmm. And uh, now the, uh, the school board taking action against him is, uh, frankly, a vindication, I think, of a lot of uh, frustration at this, this school board meetings in particular, uh, in, you know, in the year prior to this year. So is this evidence, then, if the, if the, the superintendent has been fired, is this evidence of the system working? Or do you think it's still evidence that there was mismanagement? I mean, is this a critique of school boards and being kind of um, dismissive of parents' interests? Is the issue that it just took too long and obviously should have happened earlier at earlier early enough to stop the second assault from happening? Obviously, but I mean, what's your attitude toward? I mean, if, if there was this broader cultural. Mm-hmm. Um, frustration with the inattentiveness to parents in the school board context. What does this outcome do to that tension? Well, this is this is a good outcome, but one that probably was only arrived at because there was the parental outrage and the frustration and the people showing up very angrily to school board meetings. Someone famously, someone was arrested, uh, was detained at one of these school board meetings who became very... A, a teacher uh, or a No, no an angry parent was like dragged away by law enforcement um, who was, who, who, who had said his, 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 this was the parent of one of the victims. And uh, they, they mistreated him horribly mm. at the, you know, someone who was there to express frustration about the safety of his of his kid. So uh, I think this shows the validity toward a, uh, the validity of a lot of that anger and uh, a good result being arrived at only because there was a kind of grassroots movement to do something. And again, a, a, a strain that Youngkin really tapped into 
um, in his successful run for the governorship. All of this stuff, I got to say, about school boards and teaching and kids and everybody's different priorities, I mean, folks feel so fiercely about their children in yes, ways that are sometimes admirable and sometimes blinkered mm-hmm. as, a, as a non-child-having person. And it seems, frankly, overwhelming because you understand what everyone's interests are in looking after the thing that they love most in the world and which seems so vulnerable, a, a child, and which is so vulnerable. I mean, we're, we're two non-child-havers up here right? But at, at, this, at but. the same time, you know, the mm-hmm. nature of living in a community the nature of living in society is a certain level of give and take, which, you know, we're always talking about balancing interests mm-hmm. and what are my interests in having a gun and being able to protect myself against somebody else's interest in being safe from gun violence. I mean, this is the entire political discussion we have as a, as a, as a community of 330 million people or whatever. And it's hard stuff. But it does feel to me oftentimes when we're having these conversations with respect to children, the the inflexibility of our society that causes so many political problems is like that much more rigid because the stakes seem so high and people are so committed to the outcomes for their children. Well, and it's just really hard. That's all I'm saying. It's yeah, just very very difficult. I mean, I, I mean, I, I I feel very strongly about parents and families having pretty ironclad rights for their own, uh, for, for their own household for for their. Children's right, but educational there's parents options. on both sides of this is the issue. There's somebody else's parents, you know, a parent of a gender fluid student who feels like their child right. is being unfairly attacked. You know, that's that's the problem. Well, and right. I'm, what I'm I don't not... feel strongly about is tell is trying to prescribe rules for how other parents parent. Um, I, I, to the ever extent possible, I don't want to do that at all. Your kids are your kids. Different families can have different values, can have different things that fit different families, different educational environments that work, different policies right. work. But it's really not on us schools. to. And well, there's some standards that have well, to be Well, and I'm not in, in love with the concept. Well, even in a private school, standards right. have to be put in place, and people at the community still has to come to terms with what they want this, those standards to be. You can't escape this by siling yourself more and more and more unless you just want to have a private tutor in your fiefdom with your armed guard standing outside of your house, as we were discussing yesterday. And you can reduce it down to that, that level, but the reality is that most people can't afford an armed guard, most people can't afford a private tutor, most poor people can't afford to build a moat around their home. If we refunded them back the per pupil spending for school districts, they certainly They can't. It's a massive amount of money, the public school system. People cannot create their own infrastructure, create their own power system, create, build their own houses. People don't have the resources to live on an island. That's where we live in a community. That's why even society has evolved beyond the Stone Age. Education can be publicly uh, paid for, sure. Does it need to be publicly provided is, I think, the question. I'm not even. I'm not even. I'm not having a conversation about that. My, the point that no. I'm making is that when you, it, when you choose to live in a society, mm-hmm. which we all do, because n- no one's Thoreau out in a forest right now, that there is necessarily going to be trade-offs. And all I'm doing is trying to acknowledge. I'm not taking a side here. I'm just yeah. really trying to acknowledge how difficult it is, and that if people, I think, especially with respect to children, because the stakes feel so high and people are so passionate about their kids. If there was more of an acknowledgement, I think, that those interests exist on both sides of all of these equations, I think that having a little bit more grace in these situations would endure to everybody's, endure to everybody's benefit because it's just so difficult. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, and, and conservatives who have a, a impulse right now or an interest in you know, really trying to bring the state into, because they're concerned about, actually, uh, frankly, concerned about sexual abuse and trans issues and all that, um, you know, it, it will not benefit 
uh, conservative parents to have the state more involved in parenting decisions. Even the community, so many, you know, we talk a lot about, actually, I'm going to post it uh, later today on uh, Reason's website, a, a great post by my colleague Lenore, uh, who covers these issues of child protective services. And, you know, another example, she has 10 of these a day of you know, family, yeah. letting, you know, let their, their nine-year-old play outside in the front yard for too long, and some nosy neighbor sicks the state on them, right. and the, 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 the policies that have been arrived at by the community or its representatives are nonsensical sure. and are ridiculous and are infringing on this family's right. They trust their nine-year-old is a responsible person. It's fine. Absolutely. It just happens all the time. For sure. And, uh, and very bad stuff. Yeah. According to a source familiar with the firing, Ziegler will be paid his annual salary and compensation for the next year. Oh, that's nice. That includes a $12,000 annual vehicle allowance, health insurance, and retirement benefits. Well, look, I don't, m- mismanaging something I don't think means that you shouldn't be able to pay for cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, like we live in a, and I'm sorry, like a, a hellscape where your health insurance is entire, your ability to survive a treatable disease is tied to your ability to stay employed. And I don't think that we should lose our humanity and be wishing that people be in the wild, wild west of dying from treatable illnesses simply because they've made a bad decision in an employment context. Um, so if you don't want various institutions to have to keep supporting folks in this way, we have to support a social safety net that allows folks to ethically cut ties with people who have done wrong. All right. I would rather have a social safety net than be obligated to pay the car benefits for public, Look at this. <laughs> public right. sector workers who Robbie screw up. comes out in right, favor fine. of the social safety net. Medicare for all. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's, let's end on that positive note. Okay. We're rising for you right after this. <laughs> We're back with senior broadcast contributor for Yahoo Finance, Kevin Cirilli. And Kevin, you wanted to talk to us a little bit about China-U.S. policy. Yeah. Uh, weigh, on, weigh in, spout off. Well, look, I, I, I think from a broad standpoint, President Biden going to Arizona this week with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo to tour a TSMC semiconductor chip manufacturing plant is a big, big deal. And, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of folks are wondering why. Well, when half of the global supply chain of the microchips comes from Taiwan at a Taiwan-backed uh, company called, or headquarter company, TSMC. And now you've got a major, major U.S. plant uh, being built uh, from TSMC in Arizona on U.S. shore. Uh, that's a huge deal because it, it suggests that the supply chains for these microchips are going to be increasingly onshore to the United States and to strategic partners and allies uh, in Europe. Now, everyone's like, wait, 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 wait. Is this an episode of the Jetsons? Like, what, what are you t- doing talking about microchips? There are five <laughs> microchips in your phone. Mm. There are a, a hundred or so in your laptop. Mm. There are several hundred in your airplane or car. Cars are now computers. And, so the, and, and thousands in, in airplanes and spaceships. I say all of this because chips are the new oil. They're the DNA for modern life. And so when you have China, communist China, uh, having such a dominant uh, hold over the microchip marketplace, that has significant repercussions geopolitically. And so the U.S. took their eye off the ball. The United States invented the microchip out in Silicon Valley decades ago, before we were born. And Suddenly now we've we've seeded the, the marketplace to to other countries and I think what this represents 
from the previous administration as well as a continuation from this administration is that the U.S. has woken up to that. So what exactly is the threat here? Because it's not new news, to your point, mm -hmm. that there this in this industry and many others, we've outsourced it over, overseas. But the supply chain crisis that was brought on by COVID has made people, I think, more cognizant of the ways that we are vulnerable in various capacities like this. So we, we saw this spotlighted with Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan uh, a few months ago now, which was unprecedented in its scope. And everyone said, oh, she's going to try to start World War III. What actually is the pressure point here? What is the concern that our access to the chips in Taiwan are actually going to come uh, Try to move the goalpost. Not Speaker Pelosi. China moved the goalpost. Because China, for decades, had said that they wanted to maintain the status quo between Taiwan, an incredibly important democracy, and an island in, in the Indo-Pacific region, and with China. And the United States consistently, for decades, has maintained that. China's military drills, Xi Jinping's communist military drills in the Taiwan Strait, has forced the United States to wake up. Look no further than what happened with Vladimir Putin with his war with Ukraine, and how many U.S. businesses and companies were absolutely caught flat footed as a result of the sanction structure that the administration correctly put into place. And so now a lot of CEOs in the business community that I'm talking to with my two fellowships, as well as through Yahoo Finance, are literally waking up and saying, if Xi Jinping pulls a Putin with Taiwan, what impact will that have, not just from a human rights perspective, but from an economic perspective here in the United States? Look, progressives as well as conservatives would agree that China has stolen intellectual property, uh, has not played by the fair share of the rules, and have stolen U.S. jobs for decades. And so, you know, I, I think when, when I talk to folks on both sides of the aisle, there has to be more of a, of a focus on this. I, I was struck to see uh, that uh, Republicans and Democrats agreed uh, to allow for there to be more financial assistance for Taiwan to defend itself or to maintain the status quo. And then separately, Xi Jinping backed down. You saw this when and he kept pushing for these draconian zero COVID measures. And even in a communist country, you had protesters and so well, saying that this was not that this was not going to be the case. Let me finish because this is important. It's important that we all want human rights. Trust me, I want equality. But you can't just push for that here in the United States and turn a blind eye to it in, in communist countries. So, so there's a lot of parts of that. Yeah. One, I, I don't want to get into a debate about it right now, but yep. to me, the fact of China being communist is not material to this at all. Countries have self-determination. They can have whatever economic structure that they want. And it's not clear to me that that's like helping the conversation, getting to the root of the conversation here. But the problem, the issue is whether or not there is, there are national security interests and uh, supply chain interests and having more more things being, especially key products being manufactured at home. And you characterize that as China stealing America's jo American jobs. A lot of Americans would point out that it is, it is a, a union of corporate interests who are trying to make more pennies on the dollar that have allowed so many jobs and supported trade deals that allowed so many American jobs to be outsourced to other parts of the world, where corporations exploit the lower quality of living and the absence of certain uh, human rights protections, et cetera, elsewhere. And so now to be kind of beating the drum of, of, of war, as some conservatives actually are no in this moment, more. and escalating tensions with, uh, you know, significant world powers, 
and the way that's been done. Some conservatives and many Democrats. And, and some Democrats, <laughs> absolutely. Without taking responsibility for one's own trade practices and choice to exploit profit rather than keep jobs at home seems a little bit two-faced. Not to say that ultimately it is not advantageous to wake up to the fact that we absolutely should be building more of these things on American shores. But what do you make of people who might say, well, I voted for Trump because I appreciated that he was uh, critical of NAFTA and critical of the bipartisan support for the trade deals that put us in this situation situation to begin with. Well, no one wants war. No one wants war. But look at the Xinjiang province of China and look at the, the world's largest Apple iPhone production plant. And when you have thousands, thousands of workers walking out, walking out because of the horrible, horrible zero COVID policies and the restrictive policies that communist China has imposed on these people, that is going to have significant repercussions. I would argue that, you know what's happening this week right now? Is Xi Jinping's meeting with MBS in Saudi Arabia. And the dynamic of, I think, Putin's dance with Ukraine, war with Ukraine, and Xi Jinping now, I think the world has woken up. And the polls suggest but, Kevin, it, but you, the polls suggest that I think it's up I think it's above 90% backs NATO. And, and I think there's, there's an understanding. Wait a minute, 90% of who? Because I'll tell you what, none of, the, none of the global South, the majority of the world is not supportive of America's position with respect to Russia. It feels as though native, NATO expansion was an unwarranted provocation, and it's the global South that is going to have to deal with the consequences of, of the, the supply chain crisis that it caused them to have to face uh, hunger, starvation, and, and, and a lack of energy supply. There is, a, I think, a lack of reckoning with America's role in it, despite, obviously, it being an unjust war. And, and not, you know, in, a, in an invasion of a sovereign territory. But a lot of people say if you want things like this not to happen going forward, including in China, you have to be cognizant of the ways that America has maneuvered in the international sphere to, frankly, ignore what was an obvious provocation in the years leading up to these kinds of events. More, so, moreover, and, and it, does, it does seem to be, again, only half the story to complain about conditions in China with respect to zero COVID and ignore the fact that the very reason there are Apple factories in China in the first place is because these companies want to exploit the low, the low um, pay and the standard of living that they don't have to, to support there because of the absence of the labor rights that we have in the United States of America. So if Apple doesn't want zero COVID, it didn't just show up in China because of the goodness of its heart and it wanted to provide Chinese jobs. Apple chose to exploit that system and now we're turning around and saying, oh, China's the bad guy and Apple Apple has no, has no um, responsibility here for the choice to go to a country where it could profit from having those kind of low worker standards? You know, look, I think it's the one area of bipartisanship in the new Congress that's, that's going to make significant headway. I think that Republicans and Democrats would agree that especially right now in this new, in this new era, that, that this is the one area where if Xi Jinping is not, uh, is, is not addressed in a way where he is you know, going to be held uh, for keeping the status quo, keeping peace, you know, and not doing these military drills, not war sabering or, or warmongering as his actions have done, in addition to oppressing Muslim minority, Muslim minorities in his own country. Uh, I think the world has woken up. And I, and I specifically think uh, that based on my reporting, that a lot of progressive and conservative um, uh, governments in the uh, Europe as well as the Indo-Pacific region, uh, I think increasingly African nations as well are are deeply skeptical of uh, a Communist uh, Party of China's um, economic, human rights, 
and uh, unfortunately, military. Well, uh, maybe some rhetoric. of those nations could be places we could put uh, plants to manufacture superconductors. Well, look at India. Or uh, we had Peter Pitts on earlier this week, I believe, a former FDA commissioner who said, uh, talking about the shortage of uh, liquid amoxicillin, mm-hmm. saying we could build it in Morocco. We could be, he named a bunch of countries where you could have plants that were not China, so you don't have the you know, geopolitical threat issue. But also, I'm just very skeptical that we're going to wholesale bring back manufacturing to the city because, I mean, they left because for all the reasons you described. Yeah, well, and you're they seeing that with, in, with India. But they, okay, just, but they so they can make better that's and fine. more profit. That's fine, like, but to Kevin's initial point, when you have the... The interest in the, when a technology or a good like oil, whatever it is, is so crucial to the functioning of your economy at a certain point or COVID vaccines, whatever it is, when it will be a national crisis for you not to have X, Y or Z. At a certain point, some countries might say that there's a trade off between the profit motive and being able to protect oneself in the middle of a pandemic or any other kind of crisis and having a certain degree of manufacturing of whether it's semiconductors, whether it's having stockpiles and reserves, whatever it is. Is in the national interest, and and in but then a world would you, where we're would only you say suspending the all the regulations that make it that, that shrink the ability for profit because you have to do all the sorts of labor standards and environmental protection and every the, the reason it takes so long to build and do everything here because we have all these baked in government requirements that you don't have in other places. That's why they go well, elsewhere. Would way, you suspend those if it's so important? Can I, can the place I, I would start is is the actual profit, which is to say that, um, you know, corporate greed and the extent to which people are making these kind of decisions, not because it's impossible to manufacture I mean, you just can't but because they don't want to. You absolutely can. And, and you've done and I respect, many war posture moments in American history. I respect the, the, I mean, you're the, saying we the progressive and the conservative debate here. And, and look, and you guys know I'm a nonpartisan uh, journalist, but I will say that my bias is I believe in democracy and I do want to own that. And so the, the, uh, with that said, you know, in the financial conversation, there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation about decoupling from China. Well, what we're witnessing and the trend, based on all of the analysis and the previous administration continuing into this, which in many ways has gone further on a thing called reverse CFIUS with giving it more bite than, but not to get too in the weeds. We're seeing tech decoupling, and I think the the notion is that you, I, I totally respect your right to say what you said, uh, but in. In communist China, you couldn't you couldn't criticize the communist government on their platforms. They sti- they 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 stifle freedom of speech, and so the question becomes, especially on tech, when these microchips, for example, are made all around the world. It's not just they're not just built in one place. Who has access to that data? Do you want a society that believes in freedom of speech, that believes in voting rights, that believes in, and I'm not saying we're perfect because it's been a humbling time to be an American, let's be honest, but do you want that or do you want a society that doesn't have respect for, for that? And I think that's the, the, the biggest question of our era. Sure, and those are decisions that Americans can make and they can choose to build these yeah. facilities at home or in more friendly countries. But it is not an excuse, and I think there's a lot of people are concerned about and that what we've talked about on this show, Robbie. It is not an excuse to instigate global conflict with other world powers. Do you see the difference? Going to war with China no because of war. saying they have human rights abuses and all of these no justifications. At the same time, you brought up MBS earlier in China's relationship. A U.S. court just said MBS was off the hook for the murder of Khashoggi. Uh, Joe Biden said that he was going to make him a pariah and instead has made him his uh, best pal. That was before we needed him. That's before we needed him. Exactly. So I, I don't know. Like, those kind of excuses seem to be weak justification for all kinds of militarism and interventionism that we wouldn't support, even though I think some of the fundamental 
concerns are perfectly valid. Look, it's such it's such a pleasure talking know, to you about all of this. Talk about you, yeah. Today, we, you, the viewers yeah. got not just two <laughs> stridently different takes, but I think three stridently different takes. Hey, you know what? Only here on the Hill TV. <laughs> Thank you for the joining rising. us, Kevin. Anytime. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back. Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. More rising after this. <laughs> Tara Reid, President Joe Biden's former Senate aide who accused him of sexual assault, is pushing for a full investigation into the president over her allegations, as well as Hunter Biden's laptop. That's according to Newsmax. Here's Joe Biden's response to the assault allegations when asked about it on MSNBC back in May of 2020. She says in 1993, Mr. Vice President, that you pinned her against the wall and reached under her clothing and penetrated her with your fingers. Would you please go on the record with the American people? Did you sexually assault Tara Reid? No, it is not true. I'm saying unequivocally, it never, never happened. And it didn't. It never happened. According to the Daily Caller, the Department of Justice has issued a subpoena probing Twitter for information on Reid's accounts in the months after she accused Biden of assault. Meanwhile, House Democrats' new leader, Hakeem Jeffries, is making headlines following new call, the new calls for an investigation. In April of 2020, Jeffries broke with the Democratic Party when he said Reid's claims against the then presidential candidate should, quote, uh, should be, quote, investigated seriously. So, you know, there are a couple of things here. One, the fact, I mean, we, you know, we say he broke with the Democratic Party, but there were some people at the time from the moment that Joe Biden uh, announced his campaign, and I believe there were eight accusations made against him at the beginning of the, of the primary season, a number of Democratic politicians, including his own now VP, so that women should be believed and these things should be investigated. But by the time the Tara Reid allegations came out, Biden had all but won the Democratic primary, and the tone shifted dramatically, such that, you know, none of us obviously know exactly what happened except for Tara Reid and Joe Biden. But the fact that there was absolutely zero interest in investigating this at all, mainstream media wouldn't touch it. I believe the only real substantive interview that um, Tara Reid got was with Megyn Kelly. And of Mm -hmm. course, that was looked at askance because of Megyn Kelly's own politics. But she had nowhere else to go. Uh, There was a strong contrast between how Tara Reid was treated and how um, Christine Blasey Ford was treated, even though I would argue that there was more contemporaneous corroborating evidence for Tara Reid. Her mother had called in in the 90s to the Larry King show and talked about what had happened to her, you know, long before there was any, you could argue there was any kind of political motive for her to want to be bringing these things up. And yet the mainstream media, the liberal media had absolutely no interest in following up on the story. So these two parts of it now, the Hakeem Jeffries comment being dragged back up because he is now House minority leader feels like an admission that he's going to have to reckon with. And secondly, this question about whether or not there's anything in the Twitter files that indicates that she might have been treated poorly, suppressed, et cetera, um, to advantage the Democratic Party, the same way the Hunter laptop story was suppressed to advantage the Democratic Party. Yeah, with this one, it's really, it all falls apart in the comparisons to other cases. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not sure I think how this was handled, the, t- the Tara Reid accusation was handled, is necessarily wrong. It is just such an outlier compared to everything else, including Christine Blasey Ford. It, it is an outlier. It, it is wildly out of accordance with what, sh- with what so many Democratic and progressive people say about how sexual assault accusations should be handled. It is wildly out of step with how Joe Biden said sexual assault allegations should be handled. He has said, almost direct quote, 
There should be, when a woman comes forward, she should be believed. Um, it, it should be almost automatic and presumptive that she's telling the truth. This is, then many people point out how unsustainable this is, not because people, I don't think that people are especially likely to lie about this. People just lie in general. It's not that women lie, it's just that people lie, or people misremember, or they exaggerate, or they make themselves out to be differently, and stories stories change over time. We all know that happens. We all know how slippery memories are. So to have the standard of automatic belief just doesn't, it, it, it's not workable. And I right. think he's seeing why it's not well, look, workable. It's just, I think that there's a perfectly fine to have like a rebuttable presumption. The, the believe women stuff, I think, is an overstatement. But it's a response to the fact that there was a categorical don't believe women. That was the, the norm before right. that. Definitely wrong. And, and my issue, I think we agree, it's the complete and total lack of interest in any mm-hmm. kind of investigation. When again, okay, memories can be faulty, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, there was a neighbor that she talked to at the time. There was this Larry King interview. There were so many moments that were contemporaneous or near contemporaneous that, frankly, didn't exist in a lot of other cases, including Christine Blasey Ford. And for that to be completely ignored, moreover, a lot of people who were actually very involved in the Me Too movement, people like um, Alyssa Milano, who were associated with Time Up Mm -hmm. and these big orgs that were fueled by the Me Too movement. When the Joe Biden accusation, when the Tarveed accusations came along, she literally started a podcast and had Joe Biden on as her first guest to talk about how wonderful he was for women's interests, completely throwing all of their values and stated yeah. beliefs under the bus immediately. And one of the most craven political about faces that I've ever seen in my entire life. They had people like Stacey Abrams on TV looking shell-shocked, having to run cover for Biden. All of these Democratic women were put on TV after having said all of this stuff over the past two years or so with the Kavanaugh hearings and made to defend Joe Biden immediately, not doing what right. Kim Jeffries said, which is, well, of course, we need to investigate All the this. same people who said that Kavanaugh is all but a confirmed rapist. There's a confirmed rapist on the Supreme Court now. And look, and I don't, I think, obviously, I didn't vote for Joe Biden. I think if I was inclined to vote for Joe Biden, um, <laughs> I don't think this accusation would have changed my mind. It, it was a long time ago, and there was not enough, uh, the overwhelming amount of evidence there would need to be for me to really think there's a high degree of likelihood this happened, and this is going to change my vote. It wouldn't have had any effect. But I would have said the same for confirming uh, Justice Kavanaugh. I mean, in both of these cases, I, it's their actual policies that matter to me more than anything else. But it, it was the same kind of, look, maybe this happened. I, with all due respect to the people who brought forth these accusations, it, it's, not, it's not to malign them or say that they're dishonest people or to say that they don't, or that they don't believe something real or that it didn't ha- I don't know. Uh, it, it's just hard to adjudicate things from a long time ago without a lot of uh, evidence, reliability, et cetera. It's very difficult. Uh, it's ultimately up to up to voters, or I guess indirectly voters in the Kavanaugh well, case. Well, that's the problem. The question is here: Was it left up to voters, or was there a thumb put on the scale? Right. Not just be the by media the did not talk about it, it, but in in the any, Twitter files, any, are we going to find yeah. out? You know, and we obviously know this is speculation and speculation on the, on the part of Tara as well. But like, is there is there going to be evidence about how this that particular situation was handled? I know that you know on the Bernie campaign. At the time, at the very last days, we were instructed not to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And, you know, people can debate really? the wisdom of that kind of decision. No, I didn't say a word about it, couldn't tweet about it, couldn't express an opinion about it. That's wild after Bernie dropped out of the race. You would th- think that would be a good argument. Like, we've got two, two, uh, two candidates. One does, regardless of their, if it's true or not, one is not tainted even by false accusations that... Yeah, well, is an advantage in picking a candidate, presumably. And one argument is, if you're going to go up against Trump, and one of the terrible things about Trump, and people want to hit him over, is all of the sexual assault allegations. Don't you want a president running against him who has a clean bill of health in that regard? Joe Biden didn't. But 
I think a lot of folks don't even know that there were all of these allegations in the beginning to, to Joe Biden that not just Kim Jeffries, but Kamala Harris and others said that they believed the women that had accused him, a lesser, lesser, less, less, um, uh, a, you know, significant kinds of assault than the one uh, Tari's accusing him of, you know, more of the hair sniffing, right, the adding, touching, the, touch, yeah, you know, yeah. th those kinds of things, but they existed. Um, and for me, this was, my, I was never going to vote for Joe Biden, but for me, this was less an indictment of, um, how I felt about Joe Biden as a person than the colossal disappointment that I had with the Democratic Party for being so clearly transparently only invested in these principles that it holds over the Republican Party's head only as so far as it um, supports their own candidate. And I, I say the same thing about Herschel Walker and all of these evangelicals and conservatives who say they care about values and life and stuff, not caring if Herschel Walker um, pays for abortions. You know, all of it I find to be really disgusting. You, you can have your hypocrisy, you can prioritize your policy, but don't at the same time do all of this hand-wringing about your morality. Well, and one other aspect of this hypocrisy that I always need to point out is that um, under the due process rules that the Biden, uh, the Obama administration pushed and then were briefly pulled back during the Trump administration and are now being reimposed on college campuses by the Biden administration. Uh, the Tara Reid accusation, if Biden were a college student under the policies his own administration supports, he would absolutely be convicted and thrown off campus it, or, or could be, depending on how things mm -hmm. it would be absolutely enough to decide he is responsible for sexual misconduct and should be expelled. But... Well, the rules for thee are not the rules for me is generally how it goes. Well, that's all for us today. Make sure to tune in tomorrow for our Best of Rising, where we bring back some of our most popular segments from the week. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. That's anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also catch us daily on Roku, Vizio, Plex TV, Local Now, and uh, on thehill.com. So many places, so many options, no excuses not to tune in. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.